Hello and welcome to the History of Voting podcast. My name's Chris Oates, and I'll be your host for this. It's brought to you by One Nation Every Vote, a nonpartisan group sharing the stories of why our votes are so important. One Nation Every Vote can be found at 1v.vote, that is O-N-E-V dot vote. There you can find the four sections that go into 1v. One Voice, which shares the stories of American voters and their communities. One Village, where this podcast lives, as well as attitudes about voting held throughout our history. One Vote, with stories of extremely close elections, many of which were decided by a single vote. And One Victory with resources to help boost turnout, hopefully past the previous modern midterm record of 48.4% of eligible voters set back in 1966. Today, we are going back to the most violent period in American history. It's the Civil War and Reconstruction. Now, just to set the scene, the Civil War started in the wake of the 1860 election. It was, without a doubt, one of the most consequential elections ever in the United States, perhaps the most consequential. Turnout was 81%. The winning candidate, the Republican Abraham Lincoln, received 40% of the popular vote, only 40% of the popular vote, but that was helped by the fact that he wasn't even on the ballot in 10 southern states. Nonetheless, with 40% of that popular vote, he won because he swept the more populous free states of the North and California and Oregon, and that gave him 60% of the Electoral College victory. He was the first president in history to win without a single southern state. After Lincoln's election, southern states started seceding. A month after he was inaugurated, Confederate troops fired on Fort Sumter, and the Civil War began. Now, obviously, we don't have time to go over the entirety of the Civil War right here. If you're interested, there are plenty of books and podcasts and resources to to learn about it there. But from a political point of view, and for our purposes right now, it is nearly impossible to stress how much the Civil War changed the country. 625,000 people died in the armies of both sides, and that might be a low estimate. Now, that would be the equivalent of 6 million people in today's American population. It destroyed much of the southern economy. It galvanized the growing industry of the northern economy. And by the end of the war, ending slavery had become a crucial part of the northern cause, seen as an integral part of the fight to save the Union. Before the war ended, the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery had passed Congress and was on its way to ratification by the states. Slavery, I should stress, had always been the foundation of the Confederate war cause. It was the reason why the states seceded. So at the end of the war, in many ways, the South was unrecognizable from just five years earlier. A large percentage of the white men had died in in battle or from disease while being in the armies. Military governments were in place across the region. And the former slaves were now citizens, representing more than 40% of the population in Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina. What would happen to those former slaves? Would they become full citizens with the right to vote, or would they be relegated to a second-class status? That would be determined in the years that followed, what would become known as Reconstruction. To discuss this and all of the issues surrounding voting during Reconstruction, I am joined by Professor Kate Maser, of Northwestern University. Uh, so let's just begin with Reconstruction. First of all, what what is the story of Reconstruction that we should know and we might not have learned back in high school? Well, it's entirely possible that people didn't learn anything at all about Reconstruction in high school. Um, and that might or may not be the fault of your high school teacher, but Reconstruction is, is hard to teach and sometimes it falls right between semesters. Sometimes it gets smushed out by the transition from the Civil War to like the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Um, and so there's some, I mean, it's one of the most significant 
eras of American history and yet often the least well-known and uh, most misunderstood. So I would say um, there's three categories of things that I would want people to know about Reconstruction. First is Reconstruction is a continuation of the Civil War and in particular of um, the movement to abolish slavery. And so the central momentum about Reconstruction is the nation dealing with the end of slavery. What does it mean to abolish slavery? Uh, what are the rights of citizens? Who will have those rights? What does it mean to bring about an end to this tremendously exploitative and racist system of uh, labor in, in, the, in America and in particular in the South? And Reconstruction is a period of great democratic experimentation. And so this period sees struggles over things we're really still struggling over. Um, who gets to vote? What constitutes civil rights? Who enforces those civil rights? What freedom means in the most fundamental sense? So that's thing number one. Thing number two is this is a period of dramatic change in the American Constitution in ways that we are still living with. And in particular, Reconstruction um, saw the passage of three new constitutional amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, um, which really transformed uh, individual rights in the United States, the ways that people talk about their rights, and the mechanisms through which rights are enforced. And they pushed rights in a very egalitarian, equalizing direction. And so to the extent that people can say, hey, that's not fair, that's, that goes against this idea of equality or, or in, uh, kind of injustice, a lot of the reasons that we, people can now make those kinds of claims have to do with the Reconstruction Amendments. And knowing something about the, uh, the context in which those amendments were passed is really important. And the third thing I would say is that's really important to know about Reconstruction is that to the extent that it was a failure or to the extent that it was um, brought down and didn't succeed or deliver on the promises of the period, it's because of drastic opposition by white Americans. Um, white Americans, particularly in the South, opposed a lot of the policies uh, that were during Reconstruction. They opposed um, these equalizing measures. They opposed a lot of the things that uh, at that time the Republican Party wanted to do to try to set the nation on a new footing. And that opposition took a lot of different forms, ranging from um, party politics, just voting against those reforms, to um, outright terrorism and violence in efforts to stop um, those reforms from happening and to intimidate people into not trying to um, develop those the policies that were designed to set the nation on a footing of greater equality. Okay, so if we go to the day the Civil War ends, uh, Lee has just surrendered at Appomattox. Johnson has surrendered in North Carolina. What was the state of the South, politically speaking? It was... It was under military occupation. At what point did people once again start to vote for their elected officials? It's a really complicated question. Let me see if I can um, answer it in a pretty straightforward way. I mean, the, the goal of white Southerners was to get back to normal in terms of voting and governing as quickly as possible. Um, and so what they wanted, and to some extent what President Andrew Johnson wanted, was to quickly reconstitute Southern state governments and then send representatives of those state governments to Congress, which was a key signal that the states were back in the United States after secession. Um, and so by the summer and fall of 1865, under Johnson's policy, um, Southern states were, Southern political leaders 
with the exception of high-ranking Confederates, were trying to uh, rewrite their constitutions. Uh, their con- new constitutions had to include the abolition of slavery, um, and then to um, create new governments and send representatives to Washington. But one of the key things is that nothing in the U.S. government's policy, including the policy of the president, said that those new state governments had to reconstitute the electorate differently. In other words, they could say, and they did in fact say, qualifications to vote are the same as they were in 1860, as the Civil War began. Um, And that meant African Americans could not vote, um, and it, it kept in place all of the same kind of requirements for voting. So what ends up happening in the course of the next couple of years is a big struggle over the extent to which the southern states, pressured by the federal government, are going to have to remake their electorate and bring African-American men, in this case, into the electorate. And that was really done by Congress alone working against Andrew Johnson, right? And did that play into the fact that uh, Andrew Johnson got impeached? I mean, it was for uh, cabinet matter, right? But it was really about Reconstruction? I mean, so so the impeachment is part of the process in which Congress, Republican, the Republican-led Congress, took control of Reconstruction policy and took it away from Johnson. Um, Republicans in Congress did not want to see the kind of um, restoration-type governments that Johnson wanted in the states, and uh, they thought that more needed to be done to remake the southern states. Um, at the time of the, in 1865 and 1866, black men's enfranchisement, there was not a consensus among Republicans that that, that should include black men's enfranchisement. But that idea grew um, as the kind of year 1866 unfolded. Um, there was tremendous white violence against African Americans in the South, and it became increasingly clear even to kind of moderate Republican white northerners that it was going to be really hard to have any kind of lasting change in Southern politics and Southern power relations without African-American men having the right to vote. Um, And all of that is, and Johnson continued to try to interfere with Congress's policy. Basically, when Congress put military officials on the ground to oversee the first Southern elections under their policy, Johnson tried to remove the generals who were more uh, radical Republicans and put in his own people. And finally, after a lot of this kind of back and forth, the next step that Congress took was to um, attempt to impeach the president. So should we think of Grant as really the person that ushered in the high watermark of Reconstruction? It was in his first term where Reconstruction, as we might remember it or as you described it, started to take hold across the South. I mean, that's one way of thinking about it. I would actually give a bit more credit to, uh, if we're thinking about who's in Washington, D.C., I would give a bit more credit to Republicans in Congress acting together, um, kind of coming together across some pretty significant differences to make policies like the 1867 uh, Reconstruction Act, which is what shifted Reconstruction policy away from a more kind of moderate state-centered policy to this um, federally driven policy that, yes, ex-Confederate states need to enfranchise black men and put uh, black men's voting rights in their constitutions in order to come back into the union. When Grant became president, he enforced those policies, but the policy agenda was set out in Washington um, by Republican leaders in Congress. And I'll just add that um, we shouldn't also forget the ways that African-Americans themselves had been pushing for voting rights for a very long time. I was just thinking uh, recently about the ways that, I mean, in some ways we can trace 
black demands for the right to vote back to the antebellum North, where there was a big struggle over um, African-American men's right to vote. In Pennsylvania, for example, the state legislature actually went from allowing African-American men to vote to disfranchising black men. And so um, in Pennsylvania and other places across the North, there were um, black conventions in which people were saying full citizenship includes the right to vote. We should have the right to vote if we are truly free and, and members of this society and citizens of this country. So what you see in, during the Civil War and right after the Civil War is a kind of extension of that struggle that now begins to include Southern African-Americans, people newly freed from slavery, gathering in conventions, um, writing petitions, writing to Congress, enlisting the support of people in Congress to go to push through uh, with these kind of measures that tried to uh, enfranchise and guarantee the right to vote to African-American men. And what was happening in the southern states? So their governments were still uh, military, the, the federal military was still running each state, or had they started to transition back into civilian control at, at some point? The object of the um, what's sometimes called military reconstruction or radical reconstruction was to get civilian government established as quickly as possible. So um, contrary to some people's visions of reconstruction, it never was a kind of uh, permanent iron-fisted military rule or mil- exactly military control over elections, except, you know, maybe to the extent that uh, military officials were overseeing uh, the registration of voters in 1867 and the, the earliest elections in 1867 uh, and to some extent 1868. Um, but the idea was once new voters were registered, including African-American men were registered, they people would then vote on delegates to new state constitutional conventions. Um, those delegates would meet and write new constitutions for the states. Those constitutions would include uh, voting rights for African-American men, as well as, of course, you know, a whole lot of other things that state constitutions usually include, um, and that the states would also uh, ratify the 14th Amendment. And once they had done all of those things, they would then apply to become, to go back into uh, kind of have representation in Congress. And so the idea was as soon as you complete the following steps to each of these ex-Confederate states, then there will be no more military oversight and you'll be just another state in the union. So what was the start of uh, the assaults against voting rights for African-Americans in the South? Did it happen immediately or was there a period where it was relatively calm in these in these states? That's a good question. And it it kind of invites part of the answer to that is that there never was a period of calm in the South. There never was a period when um, Southern white people kind of peacefully accepted the idea that slavery was over, much less the idea that uh, African Americans would have full civil rights or voting rights. And so, um, and sometimes when I'm teaching this material or talking about it, people sometimes say, well, obviously the the federal government went too fast because they implemented um, voting rights before quote unquote, the South was ready. And that's why people, white people became so violent. But the reality is white people were, uh, 
enacting violence against African Americans from during the Civil War, uh, when the war ended. They were um, attempting to keep black people on the plantations, trying to basically restore slavery and everything but name so that because they wanted a, a, a docile, a stationary labor force, they didn't want to give up the conventions of slavery in which white people uh, were supreme in kind of every area of, um, of life, of political and social life. And so the violence that you see against black men's enfranchisement um, starting in 1867 was um, an intensification, but also a continuation of the kinds of violence that white Southerners had already been perpetrating on um, African Americans. And I'm assuming that the federal military at least tried to oppose this? Yeah, I mean, the question of um, what the military could do and did do it's a, is a complicated one. Um, again, the people in Washington, Republicans in Congress and so on, were really interested in getting the country back to a kind of peacetime footing as quickly as possible. And so um, one of they passed legislation that was um, designed to enforce um, the 14th Amendment, eventually the 15th Amendment. And um, they wanted to try to go through civilian, um, through, excuse me, <laughs> through civilian channels, through the Justice Department, which had actually just been created, and trying to not rely so heavily on the military, um, particularly as the nation moved into a peacetime um, stance. And so um, one of the most significant and interesting moments in this history is um, in 1870 and 1871, when Congress passed laws that were designed to um, enforce people's right to vote and enforce their civil rights. These laws were based on the new constitutional amendments, which said the federal government now has some say in enforcing individual rights within the states. Um, and they, to some extent, uh, successfully prosecuted uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan. They were unable to um, get everyone by a long shot. Um, but just the fact of Justice Department officials, federal officials being active, particularly in South Carolina, um, in bringing prosecutions, uh, federal prosecutions of members of the Klan, um, actually had an effect of dispersing people, of making it harder for people to perpetrate this kind of organized violence against African Americans and against the right to vote. Um, and so that's an example of where you see that federal enforcement, efforts of federal enforcement um, that were really significant. They put quite a lot of force behind it. Unfortunately, though, they weren't able to uh, do enough or for long enough to really suppress, um, to suppress those kinds of organizations. So why, why couldn't they, they continue? I mean, the U.S., the, the North had just mobilized and won an entire war against the South, you know, armed and led in, in battle with a uh, real military. Why couldn't it defeat these bands of terrorists roaming around the countryside? That's a good question. I mean, one answer to that question is that there was a lot of pressure to bring peace back to the country. And there was a lot of pressure, you know, quite specifically to demobilize the army um, as soon as the war officially ended. And so um, if you can imagine, you know, there had been uh, a draft, there had been soldiers who had served for um, years at a time, people wanted to go home, it was tremendously expensive to uh, retain an army um, of that size. And so very quickly in 1865, the, the United States Army begins to demobilize to the point where they don't at all have the kind of numbers anymore that they did um, at the height of the Civil War. And the idea of a continuing occupation by the military of the South was uh, tremendously difficult for a lot of people. Um, you know, this was a civil war where the 
enemies were actually had previously been part of the same country. And um, um, in some quarters in the north, white people were really ready to say, let's become friends again with our southern brothers and sisters. Um, You know, this fighting needs to end and we need to kind of come back together. And so there was a lot of pressure for reconciliation as well. Um, But on the other hand, there was also a lot of pressure to enforce the law and enforce the policies that the Republican Party had worked so hard to put into place. And so there's a real push and pull in the period from about 1867 or 68 into the early 1870s about what the federal policy should be and 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 who, whether civilian or military sides of the government, should try to enforce people's right to vote. So I was taught that Reconstruction ended uh, after the 1876 election when the Republicans under Rutherford B. Hayes agreed that they would get the presidency and the Democrats would get their policy of ending Reconstruction as they wanted. Is that is that true? Is that the kind of the pop history that has come down um, or was it Reconstruction already ending by the, the time that there was the disputed 1876 election? is something that that historians like to talk about. I think it's interesting to, to think about the hard break, the, the idea that 1876 election or the resolution in 1877 was the hard break in comparison to other facts uh, that we know to be the case. Um, so one is that the Republicans who were the main party, first of all, they were the most powerful um, party in the federal government and also the main ones who were committed to enforcing voting rights um, in the South began to back off of that position before the 1876 election. So already in 1873-74, the Grant administration um, was hard-pressed to enforce um, voting rights in the South in the way that they could have and should have, um, in part because they were facing political pressures. There was, a in, within the Republican Party, a kind of schism. There was a movement called the Liberal Republicans, and uh, they were to the center of the mainstream of the Republicans. And so, and then there was a huge economic crisis of 1873, and so the party in power was facing tremendous pressure um, to to kind of move to the center and um, also to just stay, to, to retain what they had um, and the power that they had. Um, and so Grant's administration was already uh, refusing to put troops on the ground when Southern allies, both white and black, were saying, help us, we are being um, violently suppressed. We can, we are not having free elections. People are coming to Republican Party gatherings and, you know, in places like Louisiana and Mississippi and um, just shooting people or, or telling people to, you know, go home or they'd kill them, um, taking off after black Republican leaders. And, um, and so, and the Grant administration just kind of saying, you know, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. So, so that's an argument that really the, the die was cast before 1876. On the other hand, um, many people think that black African-Americans stopped voting after this compromise uh, of 1877, the idea that, well, that was the end and no residual kind of afterlife of Reconstruction could be found. Um, but that's not really the case either. African-Americans continued to vote in the South in many places after 1876, 1877. And there's a lot of very interesting kind of uh, political alliances and, and what's called fusion politics in the South in the 1880s and even into the 1890s. And so there's a lot more um, play and give in the system than people might think if you think that there's this kind of hard break in 1877. So it was more of kind of like a rolling decline, or it was more of a slow decline of voting rights and the ability to vote over the next 20 years. It wasn't just all at once. Absolutely. 
Now, during this time, African-American men got the right to vote, but white women still could not vote in the country. African-American women also couldn't vote in the country. Does, did Reconstruction help play into the women's suffrage movement in that the idea, you know, the very public idea that voting rights were being debated and being fought over while half the population couldn't vote, did it give a, a charge to the suffrage movement? So women suffragists were really galvanized by the idea that the nation was revisiting voting rights. And um, many argued that now was a time to enfranchise women as well as broadening the franchise among men. Disappointed that the consti- that the, a section of the 14th Amendment inserted the word male into the Constitution for the first time in a part of the 14th Amendment that was saying states would lose representation in the federal government if they disfranchised portions of their male population. And then when the 15th Amendment said there can't be discrimination in voting based on race, color, or previous condition, that obviously still permitted discrimination in voting based on sex or gender. And so many women suffragists argued that there now should be a 16th Amendment that would directly say kind of along the lines of the 15th Amendment, uh, there should be no voting discrimination based on sex either. Um, And that argument for a 16th Amendment uh, didn't, they made the argument, but uh, there obviously wasn't a a voting rights amendment for women until um, many decades later. So in the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th, were these as the movie Lincoln and, and others have portrayed them as a bold moment where here, you know, for the first time, we no longer have discrimination in the Constitution, or was it the story a bit more complicated than that? I mean, this, these amendments were not, uh, they were products of compromise within Congress. People couldn't, no single person could get through exactly what they wanted. And in the case of the 15th Amendment, it's quite interesting and it's really important that what the 15th Amendment actually does is say that states can't discriminate in voting rights based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So that's specifically directed at no discrimination against African Americans. It can also include other uh, groups that could be racially discriminated against. Like in that time period, Chinese Americans were uh, a really important example of that. But there are a lot of things that the 15th Amendment didn't do that were actually discussed at the time. So some people had a vision for a much broader amendment that would specifically also exclude discrimination based on religion, nativity, um, as women suffragists wanted, you know, no discrimination based on sex. All of those arguments for a broader 15th Amendment were eventually shot down. And what we have is the compromise version. And what it actually allowed, as we know, was all kinds of different discrimination that was superficially race neutral, but in fact designed to disfranchise African-Americans mainly. So that is why states, when they went to disfranchise through legal mechanisms, passed things like literacy tests, poll taxes, Um, made voter registration more difficult. All of the measures that they took were facially or superficially race neutral and therefore couldn't be said to directly conflict with the 15th Amendment. And that perspective on the legality of those kinds of disfranchising measures was affirmed by the Supreme Court. And so uh, if we had had a more encompassing, broader, more affirmative 15th Amendment that said people have the right to vote or there are a lot more ways you're not allowed to discriminate, um, the United States would have ended up in a pretty different position. And and why was that? I mean, who was arguing against that broad of a, a definition? And was there a reason why other than just we don't want to change too much? 
Well, there were a lot of different reasons why. First of all, the Republican we're not the only party in power. So the Democratic Party, mainly Northern Democrats, uh, this time as Reconstruction was, as this Reconstruction uh, legislation and constitutional amendments were being made, they didn't particularly, the Democrats didn't particularly want to change the Constitution at all. They didn't particularly want black men to vote. Um, within the Republican coalition, some people, particularly from states that had a lot of immigrants, didn't want to preclude the possibility that they could disfranchise immigrants through measures having to do with nativity or ethnicity or religion. Um, also, people were worried about giving too much power to the federal government. So some people were saying, um, look, if you go that far, it will be like the U.S. government is telling the states who can vote, which at that time was a very dramatic change. It wasn't until the 15th Amendment that the federal government had a role at all in telling states who could, who was allowed to vote and who wasn't. So it seems as if basically giving ex-slaves the right to vote was seen as being within the the, the realm of, of politics at the time, because that was following up the legacy of the Civil War, but giving immigrants the right to vote, that wasn't yet involved. That was something that would come decades later. Well, the reality was that a lot of immigrants already had the right to vote. So it's not that they were directly trying to disfranchise um, immigrants. I think it was more that they were saying, as you suggested, trying to protect the voting rights of Freed people of African-American men is what we think we need to do in order to kind of complete reconstruction. Going further than that or more affirmatively guaranteeing a right to vote, even to American men who are citizens, much less to women. But the idea of an affirmative promise of the right to vote was not something they were willing to do at that time. And not something that the United States has ever actually done constitutionally. Uh, Professor Kate Macer from Northwestern University, thanks very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to Professor Kate Macer of Northwestern University for speaking today. Now, I'll be honest, the Reconstruction era is a difficult one for this podcast, probably the most difficult, without a doubt, the most difficult. The entire mission of 1V is to highlight the importance of voting and to tell the stories of why that matters. This podcast is to explore the evolution of voting from property-owning white males in the revolutionary era to everyone today. So the subtext is that it's, it's supposed to be at least somewhat celebratory. You know, as the country grows, more people are including its democracy, and we choose each episode to focus on a different era where presumably there's some kind of movement in voting, and, and hopefully that is an, in a better direction of, of more people being able to, to participate in democracy. Now, the Reconstruction era starts as part of that story, perhaps more than any other time in history. Slavery had divided the country for half a century, politically speaking, and within five years it had been outlawed and former slaves, at least the men, could now vote. They could now participate. Former slaves were even elected to U.S. Congress. I mean, one who I mean, really deserves a movie of his own worked on a Confederate ship as a slave during the Civil War. And when the sailors were on shore, he sailed the ship towards Union forces, surrendered the ship to the Union Navy, and later captained that same ship for the United States Navy. He was later elected to five terms in the House of Representatives from South Carolina. It is, at least in the beginning, and at least when talking about the Reconstruction Amendments, a hopeful story, a story of formerly enslaved people now becoming a part of our democracy. But that story doesn't last. The Civil War did not simply end when Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox. In many parts of the South, it morphed into guerrilla tactics. 
The former slave John Lynch, later member of the Mississippi and U.S. Houses of Representatives, described it as people trying to achieve their aims by the power of the bullet and not by the power of the ballot. It is crucial to stress that there was an insurrection throughout a large part of the country aimed at preventing people from exercising the right to vote. And the worst thing about it is that they won. The, the sad story of Reconstruction is that those opposing the right to vote, those opposing access to democracy, won. Now, this can be seen most dramatically and violently in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, when a mob overthrew an elected government to install the losing party, the white supremacist party. It was the only successful coup in the United States. In fact, I recommend reading an article in The Atlantic from last year called The Lost History of an American Coup d'Etat. It is fascinating and depressing, the story of how Reconstructed ended. Uh, and not just in Wilmington with uh, an overthrow of an elected government, but across the former Confederacy, the right to vote was restricted. The right to vote was battled against. And though this happened across the former Confederacy, it's important to note that it was helped by those in the North who no longer cared as much about enforcing Reconstruction and who no longer were willing to provide the armies and the military force to protect the right to the ballot. And it would be another century until that right was protected. However, that and the civil rights movement is for another episode. For right now, I just want to say thanks for listening to the History of Voting podcast from One Nation Every Vote. Again, you can find out a lot more about them at 1v.vote. That is O-N-E dot V-O-T-E. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends, give us good ratings. Anything you can do will help the podcast and will help 1v reach more people to tell stories about voting in America. The producer for this episode was Shivangi Bhatia. The editor was Spencer Curry. My name is Chris Oates. Thank you and see you next week.